This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias, and Keith Phipps. On last week's episode, we discussed Child's Play, the 1988 horror movie that gave the world a Chucky, a nigh-unstoppable murderous doll possessed by the soul of a serial strangler played by Dune's Brad Dourif. That movie is unquestionably one of the major inspirations for the new tech horror movie Megan, about a toy designer named Gemma who's granted custody of her young niece Katie after Katie's parents die in a car accident. Gemma, a career-driven woman saddled with a frequently hysterical, overbearing boss, has no idea how to handle Katie's basic needs, let alone her well-deserved grief. So she decides to kill two birds with one stone by using Katie to field test a new robot companion named Megan, or Model 3 Generative Android. Megan comforts and distracts Katie, but she's new technology in a horror movie, so obviously she's going to turn evil before long, which she does pretty rapidly, but in ways that complicate the audience's feelings about Gemma and Katie's relationship, Katie's needs, and a lot of the complicated choices involved in parenting. Megan is undoubtedly a horror comedy above all else. Writers James Wan and Akilah Cooper, who last collaborated on the utterly ridiculous good time Malignant, bring some of the same straight-faced excess to this film starting with the fact that Megan is creepy as hell from day one, and no one with the audience really seems to notice until the blood starts flowing. We'll get into the complicated tone and very simple pleasures of this movie after this break. It's nice to meet you, Katie. Do you want to hang out? Okay. Megan, your goal is to protect Katie from harm, both physical and emotional. Is that a doll? Model 3 generative. Android. Megan, for short. I can't believe you made this. I love it. Wanna hang out? Yeah, sounds like fun. Great job. It's nice to have a friend. It's honestly like she's part of the family now. They could be building emotional connections that are too hard to untangle. She's the happiest she's been since her parents died. Eat the toppings, Katie. Research shows if you force a child to eat vegetables, they'll be less likely to choose those foods as adults. Is that so? Yes. Megan, turn off. I thought we were having a conversation. So we're going to talk a little bit about the James Wanness of Megan, uh, in part because I, I mentioned him as a writer, but uh, his his role is maybe a little more complicated than that as a, a producer and somebody given story credit. Uh, and Akela Cooper is the sole credited writer, although you wouldn't know that if you looked at the the IMDb. But one way or the other, this it's a, a Blumhouse movie that has a very Blumhouse feel. And it's a movie that does feel a, a fair bit like Wan and Cooper's collaboration, Malignant in some ways. And then, you know, there's just what James Wan has been doing with his horror career, kind of 
changing and mutating over time from from Saw to The Conjuring to Insidious to this movie. There's just a whole lot of, of different flavors going on here. Where did this land for you, like among among Wan-related movies, among Blumhouse movies, among the, the horror of January? However you want to contextualize it. How did y'all feel about Megan? I, mean, I think it's kind of the, almost as good as any of them. I mean, I, I really enjoyed Megan quite a bit. Um, and I think one of the one of the James Wan hallmarks, and again, not to, to give him too much credit for this, because because uh, Kill Cooper did write the script. The one thing that James Wan sort of brings to the table is that he comes from that tradition of Australian exploitation horror. That's kind of like where he and in his uh, or his frequent collaborator in the past, anyway, Lee Wanell. They kind of come from that world, and it's all about amplifying the intensity, bringing in a lot of of dark, sometimes silly humor and you know and, and really mixing them together in a very uh extreme and, and natural and fun way and i think you see a lot of that here in malignant and i think with Juan too he's just become really good at like understanding the the franchisability of horror of being able to like have a conjuring universe where he can kind of spin off different you know sequels and characters and things like that and and uh, it, it seems to kind of also sort of marry what hollywood wants now with with the sorts of movies he likes to make it's weird to say this but it, it's it's a lot more grounded than malignant which is just you know complete oh, yes. jalo gothic uh, whatever whatever you want to call it uh madness but uh uh and it is tapped into more you know it is definitely a, I, again, strange to say this of Megan, which which is, but but I think it's it's true. I think I think it's more grounded in actual contemporary uh, anxieties. Like you know, uh, I, I hate to drop the as a as a father card uh, too often, but as a father, you know, you, you it really sent me back. Not so much now, but like you know, the fears my wife and I had about our kid a few years ago with screen time before you know we really you know she's now she's older and you know has a racked up a history of being trustworthy and not you know overdoing screen time or, or misusing it or going places you're not supposed to go but you know you you do worry but but you, more than that you kind of worry about you know offloading parenting to a machine and that's essentially you know that is this movie but obviously on a much more absurd scale literally you know physically <laughs> physically and otherwise uh, Keith, you actually brought your daughter to this movie, and we we talked to her very briefly afterwards. But apart from saying that she she enjoyed it, she didn't say much. Did she unpack it at all? I'm I'm curious what what this movie was to her. She she wept all the way home and didn't sleep all night. No, she's she's, she's <laughs> budding horror fan who's who's a lot more you know <laughs> jaded than I was at her. She really liked it. She thought it was a lot of fun. She kept talking about it. I talked a little bit about kind of like what I just said here it was like you know this is one thing that horror movies can do but like my main thing i was really happy to share with her was you know watching a horror movie with a crowd which was a very responsive crowd you know laughing at the at certain places and i don't know i don't know if any of the crowd was ever really scared because it's not that kind of horror movie but uh the the reaction to the uh, i don't want to spoil things too much but the uh, scene involving an ear um uh, <laughs> was 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 so was so was so much fun to experience uh with her but but no she um um she liked it we talked about possibly this this might be a halloween costume we'll see i'm sure she wouldn't be the only <laughs> megan if if uh if, if if she if it was oh geez that's gonna be a, a fun uh halloween costume when it comes around genevieve how'd you take megan 
I thought it was a hoot. Kind of the same thing uh, Keith said. It was really fun to watch with an audience. There were a, a couple like jump scares, but I, I I could forgive them because they were kind of done in that that winking way. Like we know you're expecting a scare here, and oops, it's just a dog barking. That kind of thing, which is very very common now nowadays. Uh, I think I've maybe like uh, grown a bit of a, a callus uh, for, yes, for, for, for that have. for that move. Um, keep watching, but, <laughs> Kennedy. Just keep watching. This you know, you, you know, if, if all horror movies involve like a dance breakdown and sing along to uh, Sia's Titanium, sure, yeah, I'll, I'll, be, I'll become a horror fan. <laughs> but but there, there, there's just there's just a lot more to this movie there's a lot more animating this movie than the scares and that's i think what i really respond to and probably what i responded to most just on sort of a like an ana- a textual analysis level was the character of Gemma herself you know being in this sort of like parental protective parent role when she is also like the frankenstein you know <laughs> she is she is she's the reason all of this happens in the first place and it like kind of stems from her own sort of weaknesses i guess and it's a complication of that mother role and obviously she's not katie's mother but she is like filling that role very very clearly uh it just i think adds a, an extra layer of interest to the all the human relationships but also just to the quote-unquote villain of this story I think Alison Williams' performance uh, kind of captures part mm-hmm. of what makes it work. Because obviously, she's great. Absurd film, but but those se- especially those scenes early on, where it's like you really get the sense this is so, you know someone who probably doesn't seem to have any certainly imminent plans to be a, to be a parent herself, and and loves this kid, but has no idea what to do with her, and so and, and becomes comes to realize that oh, this is really time consuming, and I have all this work to do. You know, it's it's it, it feels really real. And not just that it's time consuming. I mean, one of the ways I related to this film that I wasn't expecting is like as somebody who doesn't have kids, seeing the pro and somebody whose over life is overly controlled by her job, seeing the the prospect of somebody in that situation suddenly and spontaneously become a parent without asking to, and then just immediately being surrounded by judgy people who are monitoring everything she does and finding her wanting. I found that to be like a pretty queasy and and anxiety-inducing kind of thing. You know, that feeling of whatever choice you make is going to be wrong, whatever like decisions you make are going to be second-guessed, no matter how much you do, it's not going to be enough. Like you should be devoting your entire life to trying to help this kid through something that she can't be rushed through. And the fact that she offsources it at first seems like a an interesting narrative choice and then just becomes another thing to judge her for uh, in an interesting way. And I did not take this movie very seriously. I did not find it very scary. But I thought that was a really interesting undercurrent to it that felt maybe a lot more real than uh, AIs are going to take over and, and eat our children's faces or whatever. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think this film is in so many ways much better than it has any right to be. I think it's it's that way all across the cast. You really get a lot of really good contributions. I mean, you even get a scene with like a gum chomping cop 
just you know like a one like just, it's like a one scene wonder he just pops in he gets gets a really good laugh out of uh, reference to a kid's ear and then and then he then he departs uh so there's that and i think i really think that that the film's smart about tech and about a relationship with technology and about how tech companies work to in a couple of ways one one in 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 terms of like rushing products to market without fully grasping or thinking through the implications they have to shape society really to transform society there's that there's speed at which at which this could happen and then and then also just you know that then all, all the business about the lack of restrictions or guard guardrails that that are put on megan are so is so interesting i mean you have this directive really sort of to not harm or to protect the primary user but everything else is fine there's like no other I mean, it's not like a RoboCop at least had some rules. There's like no <laughs> rules for this thing. And it, and it, and so you can see, you know, the, the, the thought is that is that, oh, it's, this is machine learning. She's going to, you know, and we, uh, she learns she's going to get smarter and evolve. And this is going to be a good thing. Well, maybe not. You know, you get smarter, you can evolve and you can learn to lie better and to pursue your own, you know, sort of diabolical interests and that sort of thing. I, I, th- I thought that was all interesting. I, I thought that was just kind of the silliest and most overdone aspect of the movie, in part okay. because I, it, it's just. We, but, but that's that's every AI movie going back to like Electric Dreams. You know, it's this this paranoia. I wrote a whole piece about this a year or so ago. I think a Halloween year before last about how like whatever the new technology of the moment is uh it's scary and it's going to kill you is like my least favorite horror trope because it, it just it comes up again and again and again and it doesn't it does not matter what it is the internet's going to kill you phones are going to kill you uber is going to kill you like like literally any new technology websites are going to kill you all of these things there are specific horror movies about because when something new comes along, our first instinct is to be scared of it. And so we've been seeing it, like AIs are inevitably going to learn too much and surpass us and go evil and kill us. And I'm just I'm kind of tired of that strain of horror personally. But it sounds like you're not. Well, and also, I just think it goes I think it's I mean, you're talking so broadly. I mean, like like you can c- compare this film to like her. I mean, this is, you could compare it to her. Her, her is a, also about this companion technology that machine learns and and evolves past its creator, but it evolves past its creator in in ways that can't be anticipated in ways that are much different than the the machine does in this movie. Sure, but yeah. her is a huge outlier in the film, and it's not a horror movie. No, but I'm just saying, like a lot of specific aspects of this movie that set it apart. I mean, you know, we talk about. Terminator or, or you talk about RoboCop as being, you know, those are major influences on this film. But I think the way in which Megan is developed and the, and the things that she's allowed to do, the things that, that haven't been thought thought about in terms of restrictions that allow her to, to evolve the way she does. I mean, all that stuff is interesting and also kind of reflective of Gemma's characters and her blind spots, you know, as a creator of this project as well. I mean, I, I just think there's a lot there, and I think that that's specific and not so general as like, oh, this is obviously going to kill us if we allow this machine learning technology to be a part of a, you know, robot doll. Like, I think there's more to it than that. For me, anyway, what was, you know, quote unquote, scary about Megan as technology was not necessarily the 
you know, she's coming to life and killing you aspect is more the effect that she has on the human characters and reflection of the human characters. We already discussed sort of Gemma, but also like how Katie behaves over the course of this film does become kind of disturbing because you are, you realize like this is sort of her, her trauma working itself out through this, maybe not so great outlet for it. And like one of the most kind of disturbing points of the film for me is when Katie started like acting out and having tantrums and and siding with Megan against Gemma. And, you know, we kind of get the therapist explaining attachment theory to us. And I think that maybe gives a little more nuance to this idea that technology is coming to kill us, not that it is actually going to come alive and kill us, but that it is going to do something to how we function as humans. It is going to change our brains in a way. And that, I think, is where maybe that kind of enduring fear comes from. I I get the enduring fear. I just, I I don't know. This movie weaponizes the phrase uh, emergent technology to explain literally anything it wants to do. I mean, the the safeguards that you're talking about, Scott, they do mention like they are built into her. She just ignores them. Why? Uh, Emergent technology. She also has the capacity to hack into and control any electric device, apparently. Why? Uh, Shut up. Emergent technology is why. And it, it goes back to movies like as far back as like the net, just in terms of people fundamentally not understanding how the internet works and turning it into this like giant amorphous it's just it's all linked up in ways that are going to let people hack into your GPS and drive you off a cliff. Uh, and I just find it a bit silly, which is not a huge accusation against this film, because this film is consciously silly in a way that's really fun. And I, I did really enjoy it. I just can't call out the AI stuff as being, I don't know, particularly insightful, I guess. But I mean, for one about the whole turning on other things, I mean, we, we do that now, I mean, now with the Alexa. You can just get a plug and say plug it in the wall and tell Alexa to turn off your lamp or something and it's going to happen. It's not, this is not amazing emergent technology. This is something that's happening now. But I think the other part point that the Genevieve makes is, is a good one in that, in that it is, in that it is not wholly about technology backfiring. It's about our relationship. It's about a relationship that we have technology and it's about how Katie isn't allowed to grieve in the way that she's supposed to like, like, like Katie, like this doll is solving problems, but those problems maybe shouldn't be solved like maybe she shouldn't feel great all the time mm-hmm. you know that she has to go you know when you're faced when you're faced with that kind of a traumatic situation you you lose your parents you're in this strange place i mean you have to kind of go through that and and it's hard and there and there is going to be you know the the tantrums are almost kind of like a buildup of something that would have happened anyway. Like she would have had those tantrums before, she, you know, if she, she wasn't given this doll, she just maybe not, they wouldn't have been necessarily so violent. Like she's, this was all, you know, it's almost like she was like this doll allowed Katie to push away or, or, or suppress uh, the kind of feelings that she was actually, it should have kind of gone through more naturally and in a more human way. Yeah, one of the things that, um, and maybe this is beside the point, but the movie gets so obsessed with that particular issue. One thing that kind of bothered me a little is that Gemma's never allowed to go through that experience. Gemma's never mm-hmm. allowed to grieve for her sister and yeah. or process uh, all of this stuff that's going on, like her losses and this this sudden thrusting of a huge responsibility on her in the middle of them, like. 
there's no sense that she has peers with kids that she's had like the time or reason to do any kind of research into how to raise a kid this age. It's just all dumped on her all at once. And we never actually get back to the fact that that's traumatic in and of itself, you know, that she also should be mourning, that she also should have the freedom to be mourning. And that's something that I wish once the film does get around to acknowledging Katie's grief, I, I kind of wish it had made a little more space to acknowledge Gemma's grief as well. Yeah, I had that thought, too, especially just like wondering what her relationship with her dead sister is like. Like there, we get kind of a brief line at the beginning from her sister where she's kind of like brushing off the gift that she gave Katie in a way that suggests like maybe there's a, some tension there, some unresolved tension. And we, you know, that's never explored further. But I will say one thing I appreciated about Gemma's characterization in relation to Megan is that there was never any sort of suggestion that Gemma was creating Megan out of some sort of maternal drive or some sort of urge to to have a child. You know, it was solely like her obsession is is robotics, you know, and that's what led her here. And so I feel like this story could have very easily gone into a sort of overly maternal direction and teaching Gemma that she really has the tools to be a mother and, and all this stuff. And the fact that it didn't do that, I find admirable. Yeah. And it also just adds, again, a, a kind of creepy little edge to it all. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that she sees her mourning orphaned niece as an opportunity to move mm -hmm. forward with this project that is otherwise about to sink is one of the creepier things in the film. And I, I think it's a, a nasty little bit of kind of like bleak black humor. I, I there A lot of the emotional aspects of this film that had nothing to do with Megan and that I connected with were th things that we saw in like the Babadook. Just the acknowledgement that child rearing is hard and traumatic and in some ways you have to do it alone. And it's very hard to get people to sympathize with uh, with that that element of life because we have such a way of, of turning uh, child rearing into this you know, uh, cushioned, beautiful dream uh, that has nothing to do with like a lot of the realities of it, I think. And the stories that do actually allow for some of those realities and turn them into horror stories, I think I've got kind of an affinity for. So let, let me, for just one moment, kind of pause uh, and think about like, if I if I'm the theoretical listener, uh, the next picture show listener enjoying this podcast, <laughs> am I surprised that this is a conversation about <laughs> this film Megan that I've seen advertised and memed uh, on the internet. Uh, this this silly movie with the uh, with the dancing, singing, slashing robot doll that looks like a kind of a, a prefab, you know, camp classic. I mean, you know, along the lines of snakes on a plane. I mean, I, which is not to say this conversation is mis misdirected. Quite the contrary, it's just fascinating to me that, that like this film, I think, really delivers the goods on all on the level that you expect it to. But then it's got all these other things that are sort of worth talking about. Yeah, agreed. It it goes, you know, pretty deep and dark in the things that it's playing with. And like, I don't want to gloss past the degree to which it, it just straight up weaponizes the uncanny valley. You know, Megan is creepy because she kind of looks like a person and isn't one. She kind of looks like a child and isn't one. And I think it's really easy, just as it's really easy to get a... Uh, like really great horror out of 
a small child who isn't acting like a small child. And there are a zillion like classic horror films that do that. I think it's it's pretty easy to mine horror from something that looks this human and isn't quite. But at the same time, it just feels like Megan kind of like finds a, a new updated tech spin on it that's authentically pretty creepy. Yeah, I, as I, I put my review, she's she's got she's got resting kill face. <laughs> yeah, the, the the stare. We've been calling my dog, who has a tendency to just stare intently at you until you do what she wants. We've been calling her Megan uh, for oh no, the last four hours. <laughs> Uh, there's a, uh, a dog in Megan, and that dog yeah. also does a number of things that I oh, just don't associate with dog. <laughs> dogs in movies. Yeah, I, I, I don't know even whether we should spoil that kind of thing or if we're doing people a favor in the era of doesthedogdie.com uh, by spoiling that thing. Because there are some people that I think are going to be big time mad at this movie specifically because of the dog. I mean, I th- I think we can probably talk openly about the dog. the The film will have been out for two weeks by the time uh, our, most listeners are are hearing this. So, I'll, I'll just say there is a dog that dies, <laughs> but it happens off screen and it remains off screen, which I was very relieved for because I was waiting for it to come back. And uh, the fact that it didn't uh, is definitely a point in the plus column for me for this movie. <laughs> I-, I love dogs. I hate seeing dogs killed or, or threatened on screen. It's a bad dog. You know, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Get that dog out of here. Are there bad, yeah, uh, they- bad dogs or are they just bad owners? Because yeah. this dog definitely has a bad owner. Yeah. Yeah. Tough to say. There's no great. Yeah. The, the, you expect some sort of grotesque tableau that that <laughs> Megan is going to lead a character to it's like that, that shows you definitively what happened to the dog but uh yeah it, it, it does it does avoid that though 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 the the bully at uh Katie's uh, uh alternative school think whatever the hell that is is uh <laughs> he meets a explicitly bad end <laughs> again though I love kids hate seeing them threatened bad kid get him out of here <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, he's geez, he's a terrible kid. I mean, one of the things about this movie that I think prevents it from landing too much for me as scary horror is that elements like that are so over the top. Like that that kid who is what maybe somewhere in the twelve to fourteen range. I think it's implied that he's like maybe just a ten year old with a a big growth spurt. Mm. Like. The visuals that are used to like represent how he acts paint him as a rapist. Like he literally throws Megan mm-hmm. down, straddles her, and starts like opening her clothing. There's not any ambiguity there about like whether this is a bad kid or a scary kid, like whether this kid deserves not in the real world, but in a in the kind of horror movie language uh, that's at play here, like whether this kid deserves to to die. The dog physically assaults a child uh, and bites her and, like, rends her flesh open and leaves her bleeding, like, with no provocation. Like, these are these are big statements. Gemma's boss is a cartoon, like uh, a, a big, broad, screaming, freaking out baby of a cartoon, like even more so than uh, Edward Norton in Glass Onion. Like, th- there's not a lot of ambiguity about who the bad guys are here. Wait, so wait. Tasha, uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, I, I'm looking forward to your piece defending Megan's actions here. <laughs> <laughs> it's called it's They like, All Deserve Megan, Design. Was Megan right? Megan was right. Yeah, yeah exactly. They, like, like she doesn't do it, it. It takes her a while to get around to attacking people that probably don't deserve to die. No, 
but I mean, there is a, a longstanding tradition of horror movies that turn the victims into such broad stereotypes that they're meant to be representative of a type. Like, you're not meant to feel bad about these people being harmed. You're meant to get kind of a, a gleeful, visceral, like falling down style, all that'll learn ya. Like every bad, pushy, demanding neighbor, every like boss that's cracked the whip over you and made unreasonable demands, like these are stand-ins uh, for these people. And you're not meant to consider their humanity. You're meant to go, woo-hoo-hoo, you go get them, a crazy, terrifying robot girl. And as with so many horror movies, like the shift from from almost pure comedy to like a little queasy horror is when Megan turns on people that you do that you are expected to care about, that you are expected to have invested in. Can I just say I love like one of just the little things I I enjoyed about this movie is like I love that like you kind of recognize that shift in Megan via a coaster. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good detail. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of in this movie that's fun. And I, I think, again, one of the big things about this movie that's fun is its relationship to capitalism and marketing <laughs> to children and fake ads and fake products. Just like all of this stuff that, again, comes across as really goofy and all stuff that it's drawing directly from child's play. Before we start uh, cannibalizing some of the things that we want to say about how these two movies connect as we, we talk about what we liked about Megan and why it's fun, I think maybe we should go ahead and head into Connections. I thought I heard something. It sounded like Megan. If she comes in this room, I'll rip your head right off your neck, I swear to God. I thought about what you said. About how when something's broken, you don't just throw it away. You fix it. So that's what I'm trying to do. But don't come in here, Katie. It's kind of a mess. Aunt Jem is right, Katie. I'm all odds and ends right now. I'd really rather you didn't see me like this. <gasps> it sounds like you're fighting. We're, We're not, not fighting! fighting. Gemma just dropped me on the table. But I'm okay. So now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things that they have in common. Genevieve, you noticed a, a fairly subtle detail about what these two movies have, have going on in relationship to each other. You said you weren't sure you'd be able to sell us on it, but you're going to try? Yeah. So I don't know if you noticed, but both of these films center on a doll. And that doll kills people. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Uh, yes, these are both killer doll movies, uh, which they're not the only killer doll, doll movies, but I, I think we established in the first half of this why uh, Child's Play is sort of a, a apex of the form and uh, what Megan is drawing on specifically. But I think there's it's probably more interesting to talk about the contrast between the two killer doll figures. We didn't really get into Megan herself that much other than sort of her uncanny valiness. But I, I mean, there's a lot we can talk about from like special effects to uh, like how they interact with with the humans. But I think just like sort of on a gut visceral level, like what is quote unquote scary about these respective dolls? I, I don't want to contrast them in terms of scariness yet. I The biggest contrast I want to call out is their fashion sense. <laughs> Because what the heck? Like, Chucky has this uh, just like kind of horrible 80s romper 
striped shirt with with That's big fine. broad stripes Poor, on it. I'd buy it. It's, buy it's very it's kid. very my buddy esque. <laughs> it's it is super my buddy esque, yeah. but it's uh it's just part of his iconography, <laughs> like right up there with that that big halo of like cheap uh spiky plastic hair. And Megan's grooming is such a big part of her presentation for so much of the movie. And she has, you know, in the way of of Barbies, you can kind of feel that buying different outfits for her and, and changing her into different outfits or having her change into different outfits is going to be part of a big part of the product line like she wears some very expensive looking like tailored clothing and her her looking not just put together but like i don't know madeline the movie the cover model mm-hmm. uh, is such a big part of that movie yeah and there's also sort of the detail of she's intended to like come in six different skin tones and we see like them trying on different hairs so there's like you know and that like definitely like speaks to a sort of like trend of of personalization in just toys and technology now but even you know uh going back to the cabbage patch kid that was also sort of an element of cabbage patch kids you know you could get them in no no two were alike you know they each had their own their own name and their own backstory and they came in they had different skin tones and hair and all, all that stuff. So I guess maybe the fact that Chucky, it, although it doesn't, uh, all, the, all the good guys, don't they all have like a different name? Am, am I imagining they have different that? different names. That's yeah. what sets them apart, but they, they, they look the same. Here's, I think a big difference is, I think I find Chucky kind of funny to look at, whereas I think Megan's genuinely creepy. I think the Uncanny Valley, the, 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 the spot where they position her on the Uncanny Valley is is just right, where, you know, she's cannot quite express herself fully with her face, but she's almost gets there, and sometimes she gets there all the way. The voice is, you know, not quite human, uh, but it's uh, it, it has an occasional metallic crackle to it, um, but uh, but it's otherwise c- kind of convincing, almost, you know? I don't know. Uh, she's she's unsettling in a way I find that Chucky not to be all that unsettling. Maybe just because I've, I've looked at Chucky for decades <laughs> at yeah. this point, so there's no there's no novelty there, and and you know between the movie and then sort of the the uh, increasingly comic presentation of, of that character over the years, maybe he's just lost his ability to to spook me. She's an upscale doll, though. She's like she's uh, uh, you know our 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 friend and former co-host uh, Rachel Handler did a an interview with Allison Williams at uh, at, a, at an American Girl cafe. I think that's kind of the range we're talking about. American mm-hmm. Girl being being the very expensive, high class sort of dolls, and I think that's kind of what would be the model for someone like Megan, especially um, when you're talking about price points. That's another point of contrast because. Uh, Megan costs uh, ten thousand dollars, and and uh, and in Child's Play, the uh, Andy's mom gets gets the doll for 30, 30 bucks from a guy on the street. But it retails for a uh, hundred. Yeah, that's true. That's I was about a, to say. Yeah. I was about deal. to say that 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 back in eighty eight thirty bucks is like ten thousand is today. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, uh, inflation's been crazy. Uh, but um, but the other, I mean, the other obvious difference is that one is uh, embodied by a. Uh, human and the other is is an actual robot right i mean like they're and i think it i don't think they would the two of them would get along terribly well i don't think they would find they have a whole a lot in common <laughs> despite being uh animated killer killer dolls chucky is very much a uh 
uh, man of the streets. Uh, you know, he's uh, he's uh, he's uh, he, I mean, he's, he's like he's a kind of a common scumbag, really. I mean, even despite his the, the hillsides, <laughs> hoodlum, he's a hoodlum. You said. Right, and uh, and, uh, and and I call him a ruffian. Is, uh, he's a ruffian, Ooh, and, a rapscallion. Megan, Megan's a bit more sophisticated, but it is funny to see the the, the two. The, the contrast between the two is amusing to the point where i kind of do want to see them team up or cross cross paths in some way (laughs) well and to go back to uh what we were talking about in the first half of like what drives chucky and you know it it, it not necessarily being a compulsion to kill but more sort of a you know a a hair trigger reaction and, and rage issues another thing that's interesting about megan is that what drives her acts of violence at least to start is a misguided sense of protectiveness or misguided programming of protectiveness perhaps it's not like as much of a sort of ghost in the machine it's just like a sort of a well-meaning idea that went off the rails and whose fault is that? Gemma's. She should have uh, taken more care. I mean, it's, it's kind of what it comes down to, right? No, I mean, this is all Gemma's fault. <laughs> um, you guys, she couldn't predict it. It was emergent technology. <laughs> Which I, I find the contrast in these movies between magic and technology that equals magic uh, to be pretty funny in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But I do think that there is something like as somebody who had never seen a Chucky movie before watching this and like, yes, I've I've been living with a Chucky image uh, like pretty much all my life because it's just a, one of those cultural ubiquity things. But having not really watched him in action, apart from, you know, the odd clip here and there. One thing that I do find pretty creepy about him that I think is effective is there's a distinct space. And I think they may again have gotten this from the poltergeist uh, clown doll. Between the sort of vapid uh, rigidity of his face when he's being a doll versus the the malice in his eyes, like the the visible there's something somebody actually there uh, that they bring into when he's like out and and active. And I I feel like one of the things that they weaponize with Megan is that there isn't nearly that much of a difference uh, between megan at rest and and megan active like they do subtle things with her face and particularly with her eyes uh to make her like look a little more hooded and a little more menacing but overall the fact that her face doesn't change a whole lot when she's doing uh you know big time scary evil doll kind of stuff as opposed to when she's being a kid's companion i i think that that's also scary it's strange i guess that i think things on both ends of that spectrum are creepy, but I, I, I think both of these movies weaponize their their respective approaches to killer dolls pretty well. I'm, I'm just now remembering that early scene in Megan uh, before uh, Katie even comes uh, into Gemma's life uh, where uh, they get the first sort of silicone face uh, cover for Megan and try it on and her face gets like stuck in this horrible sneer and then and then melts <laughs> and it's just sort of a it's just like an indicator of things to come as far as the, the, the creepiness the uncanny valiness of, of Megan's face. Well, guys, I have um, I, I, I petitioned director for a minute because I was using some emergent technology. Uh, <laughs> are you familiar with Chat Chat GPT, the AI chatbot? Oh boy, oh boy, what did <laughs> okay. you do, oh, Keith? No. Keith, what I have asked, you done? Why are <laughs> why are dolls sometimes scary? To which I've received this reply: Dolls can be scary for a number of reasons. 
One reason might be because of their appearance, especially if they are old or have a creepy or unsettling appearance. Another reason might be because of their association with horror movies and pop culture, where dolls are often portrayed as being possessed by evil spirits or being used as tools for harming others. Additionally, some people may have a fear of dolls because they are perceived as being quote-unquote lifelike, which can be unsettling for some individuals. Do you have any specific questions about dolls that I can help with? I'm, I'm going to leave it there. But, uh, but, uh, but oh. that is the official word from ChatGPT. Chilling. Chilling. Yeah, don't don't feed that uh, chatbot your don't praise questions the machine. And your, your hopes and dreams. Yep, it's just gonna it's just gonna come for you in the night, Keith. It's right though. Yep. Nothing. Nothing. Where's the lie? Where's yeah. the lie? <laughs> to loop back to the question Genevieve asked, that I immediately uh, it's sort of an attempt at, at comedy, but also an attempt to, to talk about the thing I wanted to talk about. Uh, diverted from <laughs> you, you asked uh, what makes these dolls scary in in contrast or in comparison, and I think one of the things that both of these movies are drawing on very, very directly that I think Megan just takes directly and specifically from Child's Play is these are horror movie villains that are very hard to kill. You know, mm-hmm. they, they're they not meat bodies where you can cut off their heads and they're done. They're <laughs> artificial things that you can literally rip in half and they're still going to keep coming for you, you know, Terminator style. And both of these movies have extended battle sequences where the the villain becomes less and less human, uh, it starts disintegrating more and more, becomes creepier and creepier and more and more damaged, and just keeps coming. And there's just sort of the question of like, how long can this go on? Oh, it's the I, I mean, <laughs> I'm gonna go point child's play on this on this question. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, I, I feel that. like I feel like when they burn, when Chucky gets burned, and uh decapitated and then comes back that's good stuff uh you know because 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 you have this other detective that isn't chris sarandon who comes onto the scene and of course is disbelieving as anybody would be that this doll is any kind of an issue especially since it's now burned burned up in pieces on the floor and uh then he picks up chucky's head which i guess can see things and then out comes chucky's torso through the through the vent that attacks him i mean that's that's good stuff that's quality that's quality cinema right there yeah i mean the dismantling of megan felt it's interesting because i feel like megan uh, like calls to child's play most explicitly in its first scene and its last scene basically Mm -hmm. because they they both open sort of with these fake advertisements well i guess i guess technically child's play does not open with the uh with the advertisement we get the whole prelude uh with the uh, lakeshore strangler's death but you know sort of the the story of the movie begins with that ad and uh, megan uh does as well and then they both end with these sequences of the you know the dolls being dismantled and like there are so many points in that megan sequence that feel just like direct callbacks to the chucky uh, big finale like right down to them getting torn in two and still going you know and the sort of the face charring yeah it, it just feels like a very explicit homage at that point in the film in particular they did a pretty pretty bad job of of shooting 
Chucky in the heart, I have to say. <laughs> that's a very It's probably uh, a pretty small doll a, heart though. Well, right, but it's a yeah, that's a that kind of a gun you'd think would could rip through. I I I, I was always some stuff with co- comedians with this film about just like just kick him, just kick Chucky. <laughs> it's just a little doll. What's the deal? What's wrong with Chucky? Um so but, I don't know. I, I mean that's what what what's scary about him is you kick him and then he comes back from a different angle with a different weapon. Like it does happen over and over. He gets thrown across the room, he gets punted, whatever. The whole point is you're gonna get tired before he does because he's not he's not alive, you know. He's a he's a doll. He's he's scrappy. He's a man of the street. <laughs> he's a hoodlum. <laughs> you know how hoodlums are. That is not not to not to get into nitpicking territory here, but you know Chucky is magic. You know he'll he'll keep coming. That's fine. Why would you make Megan that powerful? Like what what is, what is the design motivation to make a doll strong enough to kill you? Well, see, they didn't originally design her to kill, but emergent technology, Keith. <laughs> okay, I forgot about the emergent technology. I don't think that th- she's necessarily designed to be like, let's let's make this robot capable of hucking a car at somebody. I think that much as with the Terminator, like the thing with the Terminator movies that always got me was just the the fundamental understanding that this thing is made out of something much denser and harder to damage than you are. And, you know, if you if you collide with it in any way, it will break you. It's just the difference between metal and flesh. And it it seems to me that Megan is probably as enduring as she is just because, you know, they, they made a metal armature uh, that was capable of supporting the musculature that they needed for the doll. And that just happens to be like denser than a, a child's flesh and bone. Like that's kind of one of the creepy aspects of robots that gets people so worked up about the Boston Dynamics robo dogs or what have you. <laughs> sort of a, another like why would you do that element of Megan though is like my my husband and I were were talking about it afterwards of sort of like the how she like just turned against everyone and it's like this is an entity that has consumed all of the internet and all of Twitter like in one go. Of course it turned her evil. <laughs> like talk about emergent technology, but like just as far as sort of the technology as magic uh, element goes, like I think you can kind of look at the internet as poison being what uh what turns Megan bad here. For sure. And I I mean I think one of the one of those really telling little details like the coaster is towards the end when she says what's the big deal humans kill each other all the time right you you find yourself thinking okay well how would i explain that to an ai like how would i explain that to something not human that i am trying to keep from killing me like what is the what is the fundamental value of my life in a way that i could explain it to a robot that is looking at the history of humanity. You know, there's there's a lot of precedent there for Megan not thinking that human life has any value. And it's very difficult to make that argument, to, you know, for, for higher morals from something that has seen how we behave to each other. Yeah. You listen to that many episodes of the Joe Rogan podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, we've told you to stop listening to Joe Rogan. <laughs> <laughs> when do you even listen? Uh, how many distracted boyfriend memes has she seen? <laughs> anyway, I just... All I of just, them. Thinking of a little... 
before we we get too deep into uh, killer dolls and Joe Rogan and uh, <laughs> how it's all his fault, one of the things that uh, I just have threaded throughout this entire thing is just how much these two movies are a critique of capitalism. You know, one of them is expressly about like animated stories, marketing a toy directly to children by telling them it's the friend that they never got to have and that it will meet all their needs. The other one is about marketing horrible crap to kids by telling them it's fun. Both of them have these like commercials that are aimed directly at children that that feel like all of these uh, like children's toy commercials we've seen over the years that are basically just about like bypassing all thought and saying you need this it's it's fun it's going to fill your your the empty spaces in your heart go get your parents to buy it for you and it's like this is this is the start of how we all become little capitalists thinking that buying stuff is going to fix all of our emotional problems and then both of these things turn on their owners, don't give them what they advertised or what they promised and and turn into, you know, monsters, like expand the holes that, it, that are in their lives rather than filling them. I it just both of these seem like really dark satires of capitalism to me. Yeah. And I think also they, they, they pair nicely because one's on the production end and one's on the consumer end. Mm hmm. Yeah, the the open acknowledgement that the company behind uh, Megan is has like no interest in extensive testing of uh, anything about this new technology. They're the the only thing they care about is rushing it to market before somebody else rips it off and, and just like makes a, a cheaper, faster, better version. The Furzy equivalent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Furzies. One of I love the, the Furzies. Yeah. One of the sort of the elements of the Furzies and the Perpetual Pet, maybe? I don't know. Seems like a bad name. But anyway, I, I thought it was funny how both uh, appealed to kids' fascination with butts in different ways. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Like that was a very crucial element of their marketing. It's like they poop, their butt changes colors. Kids love butts. They make farting noises yeah. all the time. Yeah. And <laughs> kind of what I love about that in particular is that, you know, it it's an immediate and obvious turnoff for the parents. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things where you realize that the, the kids yammering for this thing uh, is going to be wearying and and frustrating, and then the kids having it around all the time is going to be wearying and frustrating. And I really kind of love both the ad that tries to make perpetual pets uh, cute, even though they have those horrible clacky teeth <laughs> and otherwise look like half melted Furbies. Those are Sonic teeth. Those are like those are like the Sonic teeth. <laughs> yeah, uh, the original the, the Sonic teeth. Sonic teeth. It, yeah. <laughs> but like the contrast between that and how the parents feel about the damn thing just feels so real to me. Uh, whether it's Katie like sitting there glassy eyed feeding her virtual version of the pet uh, fruit just repetitively, which is creepy all its own, or the thing sitting in the backseat making stupid fart jokes. I just I, f I feel for the parents. <laughs> I think I also kind of one thing I it, this makes me think of too is that we we sh I think we should shout out Joe Dante because I think Joe Dante was a acknowledged influence of Don Mancini's in creating uh, Child's Play and then and then I think you could see his influence as well on Megan and just because because on, on top of all of the marketing of cute stuff um, which is a big part of Gremlins too 
you know, the other part of Gremlins too is is just a, a, is it being about technology going awry and backfiring. It's it's uh, uh, so kind of that's a big that's that's sort of what Megan's all about. Um, so I think I feel like that's you know we brought up a lot of points of comparison and like Megan especially is just like grabbing from one one <laughs> one major source to another. But I think I, I think Joe Dante deserves a place in this discussion too. One more while we're talking influences. Apparently, it was uh, uh, early on in the discussion brought in. Uh, it was referred to as sort of uh, Child's Play meets uh, Chopping Mall, which is a 1986. Uh, oh wow! People <laughs> who get chopped in a mall with killer robots. <laughs> and can can anyone tell me the uh, fantastic uh, catchphrase that's on the poster tagline? I should say that catchphrase. I, uh, I have actually seen. Okay. I've actually seen Chopping Mall, and yet I do not remember the catchphrase. Well, Tasha, it's where shopping costs you an arm and a leg. <laughs> that is lovely. Mostly what I remember about uh, Chopping Mall, I think maybe I watched that for uh, the AV Club's commentary tracks of the Damned. I'm fairly sure that I did. I just remember encountering uh, a lot of indignance on the internet because there's no chopping in that movie. There, there's a mall. <laughs> But the the killer robots have lasers. <laughs> it's false marketing, y'all. Uh. That's just maybe uh, another thing that these movies have in common, albeit a smaller one. I think is a real distrust of child psychologists. The child mm. psychologists in both of these movies are pretty awful people who don't really seem to understand or even like children and only kind of exist as a barrier between parents and children, like a, a judgmental kind of autocratic representation of authority that can come in and take your kid away because they feel you're not doing a good enough job, but then won't actually do a good enough job themselves because they're not very good at what they do. They're they're just there to like hate on your parenting. Yeah, but I think in Megan, Lydia, the judgy, you know, social worker, she's probably in the right, <laughs> you know, like, like, mm -hmm. like, she's obviously like, obviously, Gemma doesn't like her. And because, we, you know, Gemma is sort of our POV character, we, you know, experience her as an antagonist. But as discussed many times on this already, like, Gemma did bad here, you know, she's she's not doing a good job with Katie. And that's and people are recognizing that. But yes, I think it is interesting that she uh, is positioned as an antagonist and here. She is, but yeah, I think she she has a good read on the situation. Really, I think she's I think she's kind of spot on. She does she does um, like you know, threaten, you know, like with the whole sh uh, sending uh, Katie to to her grandparents thing, you know. So there that there is that element which is maybe like not handled quite so well. But uh, yeah, I also just think I I mean I defy anybody put in this situation of like your parent, your your morning niece, to thrive under conditions where a psychologist comes into your house and says, okay, you sit here, mm -hmm. you sit here, we're going to take this toy off the shelf and you're going to roll it back and forth in front of me. Yeah. I am going to judge you and stare at you the entire time. Go. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, first, the first interaction with her is very, very much that, but she reappears a few times and I think it becomes more and more clear that she has the correct read on the situation. <laughs> There's a great scene in Marriage Story where that happens if you recall of uh of adam driver's character having to kind of prove that he's uh, running things uh, oh. <laughs> uh, running a normal household and he decorates the place and then ends up like uh, cutting cutting himself for like while, while cooking and there's blood everywhere i thought that was all that's uh 
it's good stuff i mean it's i mean i can't imagine what that's like to kind of just parent while someone's monitoring you and taking notes it's a little strange i mean how can you not how can you possibly act normal under that under those uh, circumstances yeah i think there's just a a real you know horror a real anxiety around the degree to which like every every friend of mine who's ever had a kid talks about how you literally can't go down the street without somebody commenting about you know what you're feeding your kid how your kid is dressed what kind of stroller you have like how you're speaking to them how they're speaking to you if if they're crying what you do in response there's just there's a lot of parenting you're doing it wrong attitude out there and i think maybe always has been and it it just seems like a pretty fertile ground for anxiety in uh, horror movies yeah i'm judging people all the time No, I don't know. No, it is. It is like, yeah, I mean, that is a component. I don't think you're going down the street and people are criticizing you openly, but people have strong opinions about aspects of parenting, particularly in the the early stages. So young parents out there, remember that the decisions you make for your child are their correct decisions. Don't be influenced by a bunch of of judgmental jerks. Unless they're really bad decisions, though, Scott. I mean, you got to keep that in mind. Yes. Yes. I don't. Yeah. Right. If you're if you're raising a little uh, uh, strangler who's going to turn into a killer doll one day, then please stop doing whatever it is that you're doing <laughs> to make that happen. Yeah. I mean, we do get the moment at the uh, the outdoor school where it's very clear that the the woman trying to raise the bully is being <laughs> indulgent and doesn't know how to deal with his issues. Like, doesn't have any control over the situation. And it's kind of like pretending that it doesn't exist. And, you know, I, it seems like we're, we're getting sort of a parenting. You're doing it wrong. And this is the result. And it's dangerous for everybody uh, kind of situation. That also feels a little scary. Man, maybe just raising children is scary. How do you guys do it? <laughs> Badly most of the you time, just, right? You just you, take, it, take it a day at a time. Do you, do you both feel like you're in a horror movie, like just 24-7 <laughs> uh, under oppression and also might get killed by a doll? That's like the first nine months after that it gets easier (laughs) (laughs) to sort of like bring this to the other side of the equation maybe we can kind of talk about the child figures in in both of these movies both sort of the characters and the actors who embody them and both andy and katie are you know as as i said in the uh in the first half you know they're they're alone to us you know they they don't have siblings. We don't see them with friends. They're, they have absent parent figures. And in Katie's case in particular, there is a, a huge, huge streak of trauma running through that as, as well. And the the actors playing them, respectively, uh, Violet McGraw is Katie and Alex Vincent was Andy. There, it's, it's a lot for them to take on. I would argue that uh, Violet McGraw has both more to play with and does more with it. Um, but what <laughs> is it controversial? <laughs> controversial but brave. I don't know. I think I think the, I think Alex Vincent is quite good. I mean, he's, he's, quite good he's, as a kid. he's good. I'd be curious Andy. about their relative ages when they took on these roles, though, because mm-hmm. the the kid playing Andy just strikes me as very young for a child actor Mm -hmm. and it may be that he's just small like there's a lot of variance at that age but like like i said that sequence where he breaks down crying because he knows that chucky's going to kill him and nobody's listening to him that seemed very raw that seemed like maybe an 80s thing that wouldn't fly today where they got the kid to cry and then they filmed it 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't mean to disparage the small child's performance. I think I'm I'm just trying to say that uh, Katie as a character uh, provides more opportunity to, you know, to do more as an actor and maybe something that a, a younger actor couldn't do as well as McGraw does. He was seven yeah. in the first... <laughs> yeah, so Alex, Alex Vincent is, uh, is... Well, he was good enough to be in Child's Play 2 and Curse of Chucky, Cult of Chucky. He's in the new series. Oh, Lord. That's how how say. old Let's did see. he get in the, well, he's, in well, the he's franchise? Only, he's four... He's 41 right now. Let's see <laughs> I don't how... mean how old was the uh, actor allowed to get, but like, <laughs> h- how old was he by the time he dipped out of Chucky, assuming that he well, isn't no, no, like in the Chucky TV show? Chucky. Yeah, yeah. Oh, 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 and the second one, he just, he's a different actor plays that character in the third one. I was just going to say, let's see how Violet McGraw's doing, uh, you know, decades from now when she's in, in Cult of Megan or whatever. Is she, <laughs> she, she going to be able to hold her own? Alex Vincent sure can. <laughs> I think I think much of the series just abandons her altogether, which it didn't with Alec, old Alex Vincent, who's been uh, in several films. But I, anyway, to get back to the contrast between these characters, uh, I, I think that I I think what's interesting about the movie is like what is the hole that this doll is filling? Because you know the the one thing the one thing that Andy has is is his mother who he adores. You know, I mean the, his mother who he spends the, the first part of the movie, you know, making br- breakfast in bed for. Um, what what he what he lacks is a friend. He lacks a buddy, and so and his mom mom who 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 loves him right back wants to give him this thing that he so desperately desires, and that that is sort of the trigger for the movie. Um, you know, obviously uh, Katie's situation is much much different the whole the whole in her life is is a is a chasm um that this that nothing could fill certainly not this this doll uh but the doll it does have a presence and does have a influence that is so outsized and so it's so inappropriate beyond the fact that it's murdering everything everybody and everything that it comes across uh i think that's kind of kind of interesting yeah, I think it's also interesting that the Chucky doll, you know, the the my buddy and me uh, scenario doll is expressly sold to Andy as a solution to his problems, whereas Katie is it's just sort of invited into a room with this thing and invited to interact with it. And like she's the one who sort of judges over time that it's meeting her needs and decides that she can't be separated from it and she can't be herself without it. But there's much less of a sense of like this is this is a product that was sold to her with the promise that, you know, this is this is the thing that's going to fix your life. The thing that we're so used to from advertising, like this is the thing that fixes your thinning hair, that fixes your crooked teeth, that's going to make you happy uh, if you buy it. That's the thing that surrounds the good guy dolls, like even the fact that they're called good guys. It's it's just such a play on how things are sold to children, I think, in an interesting way. Whereas Megan just seems a lot more, they're a lot more hesitant about exactly how she's going to work and then kind of delighted and surprised that she works as well as she does. We do see how she is intended to be sold to audiences, sort of the, uh, with the big presentation, you know, the the way too early, <laughs> poorly conceived presentation. But, you know, it's 
it, it, it's sort of a combination. It's less of like a friend and companion and more of sort of a glorified babysitter, but also as sort of cutting edge technology, you know, like it's it's price point and it's um, cutting edgeness is really like part of the sales pitch to the extent that we see it. And it's more about like having the newest, shiniest, most exclusive thing. It's the only doll you'll ever need yes. or something like that was like was the selling point. But yeah, I mean, a 10 grand is going to be I mean, that's a that's, that's a kind of a subplot in itself that isn't really explored in this film. But maybe what will be in future Megan films is to, like, the idea of, of uh, that exclusivity. Who can mm-hmm. actually afford this doll? You know, that that's can open up all kinds of interesting class elements to this, too. Yeah, because I can see they can the company could cover this up. There is it is a pretty containable incident uh, there at, at, at Funky Funky. Yeah, mm-hmm. Funky could definitely uh, pa- paper over what went went down when when Megan got on the loose. It's uh, the casualties were contained. Yeah, I mean they still have to explain the fact that they touted this uh, huge live presentation. They made these huge promises about it, and then it didn't happen. They're still going to have to cover that up. Tasha, but... it's emergent technology. It's unpredictable. You know, you're just... <laughs> well, how 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 enforceable of a, of a corporate uh, NDA can they sign Gemma to on this one uh, <laughs> to keep the whole thing under wraps? The murder. I think she has as much stuff. to lose as they do, though, yeah. right? Oh, yeah, there's right. a definite question it, of whether she has a job at the end of the day or whether she's in jail at the end of the day. Yeah. All they have to do is promise not to prosecute, I think. They've got to bring that gum chomping cop back. So in terms of like uh, the uh, sequels and franchise that this will almost certainly spawn, there is sort of the dangling thread of the uh, the stolen Megan files, uh, oh, <laughs> the man. company secrets. You know, so uh, I think uh, if this were to continue, uh, if the series were to continue, I would not be at all surprised to see that come back into play. Not to mention the a very classic horror movie, and she's dead, or is she? Uh, yeah. kind of thing. Oh, right, right. That definitely invites you to imagine. Okay, like now she's in the wires. Like they they can pivot anywhere with that. Like she can be the Shocker. smart house that's trying to kill you. She can get into the internet and uh, try to kill you. She can take over Twitter and insult you in a way that uh, makes you break down. Yeah, whatever. Oh, wherever yeah. we want to put pair, her. We can pair the next Megan with uh, with Wes Craven's most beloved film, Shocker. Hmm. <laughs> It's not his most beloved film. Anyway, it's Wait, more more just kind of I've, you're in the you're in the system. I've never seen Shocker, but I have a distinct memory of I was way too young to see it. Seeing like a movie on cable involving like a serial killer who like killed someone via a microwave. Like he got into a microwave. Was is that Shocker? The deal is that he they execute him or they try to, and he gets in the electricity somehow. And I, it sounds I've seen it within the last ten years, but I, I can't say I can recall that particular detail. Electric chair. I don't. I don't think this was Barbaric. it. If, I I have just the vaguest memory of this movie of a like horror movie involving death by microwave and a killer in the wires. If anyone knows what it is, please let me know. <laughs> you know, given that Malignant also uh, gave its villain the power to control electricity and technology with no explanation for that and very, very little purpose to it, except to make his voice come out of uh, radios in a creepy way. I'm gonna. I'm gonna ask. Does, is James Wan afraid of electricity? Do we do we need to go to his house and comfort him? Possibly in the dark, surrounded by candles. He only uses hand crank uh, cameras. 
All right. I bet, he uses, I bet he uses those like those like suggested passwords from the, the browser gives you those really elaborate ones. <laughs> it's probably that's probably how he locks his stuff down. All right. We have definitely uh, ranged into the, the silly corners of this discussion. So I'm going to hand crank this entire conversation <laughs> to a, a stop. Uh, Child's Play is streaming on HBO Max. It can be rented on a wide variety of digital services. Uh, just don't mistake it for the 2019 version of the movie under the same name. Uh, it's also available in a 4K collector's edition or a giant seven-movie Chucky DVD or Blu-ray box set. Megan is currently in theaters. Finally, it's time to recommend a film or film-related item that complements this set of episodes. We call this Your Next Picture Show in the hopes it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, you wrote a piece for The Washington Post uh, covering like the entirety of the Chucky franchise and its its various ups and downs. We're going to turn to you on this one. After people see Child's Play, which I assume is the one that you'd most recommend, am I wrong there? Uh, that's question one. No, and- you're, you are wrong there. I would not recommend Child's Play most of all. Excellent. Uh, I, all right. I, Tell us what Chucky movie then is uh, the, the unmissable one that people should should gravitate towards. Bride of Chucky. That's when it changed. It, the, the series had had it had kind of run out of steam after three movies. That really, the the two films that followed Child's Play are serviceable, but kind of kind of faint echoes of the first movie. And then it just and then then they hired then Don Mancini kind of took over a little bit more. They they brought in Ronnie Yu, who had come from uh, Hong Kong. He he was uh, famous for directing uh, uh, Bride with White Hair. And uh, it's, you know, this was just kind of the part, he was part of that wave of, of Hong Kong filmmakers who came to Hollywood. Um, some stuck around like John Woo, others you know, like, like himself had a little bit more of a struggle to fit in. But um, it gives the film an entirely, the entirely new look and, and tone uh, that uh, really pushes it fo- forward in a major way. Then Mancini himself actually took the, his debut behind the camera with Seed of Chucky, which is the, f- the second, the film after Bride of Chucky uh, and sort of a companion piece to that. And it is, they're very smart films. I mean, Bride of Chucky brings uh, Jennifer Tilly to the table as Tiffany, who's sort of this, you know, uh, baby voice sex pot. She was probably brought on after Bound. She was the, that was an inspiration for her character. There's a lot of sort of kinky gamesmanship. So, so there's some nods to Bride of Frankenstein, which is great. Uh, there's also, there's also homages to Bonnie and Clyde, to Glenn or Glenda, the Ed Wood film. It's very smart very self-aware, very campy, very stylish. So, so I would do that. And then, and then uh seat of Chucky brings uh, a gender non-conforming child into the, in, in, into play. So, so that film has kind of become a, a transgender touchstone. So I really think you kind of have to, I mean, I, you know, you want to start with child's play just because it's the beginning of the thing, but, but I would almost kind of skip ahead and see Bride of Chucky and Seed of Chucky uh, because they're a lot of fun and they're very distinctive and I think they've, they've found a, a real interesting niche in the culture. So those two. So Scott, one question I have for you as a, as a Chucky completist is, is there any sort of preferred like viewing order or like a movie that you like need to watch before watching the rest or is it like they all just kind of stand on their own and you can jump right in like because you said that you you wouldn't say that child's play was you know the best do you think it's like necessary as a as a yeah uh, i i would 
I would say just you know you want to start with Child's Play. I think it's a, I think we it's an interesting film as we have discussed, and it and it gives you that baseline. And then I you know I, I mean if you wanted to kind of keep rolling through, you, you'd get a couple of serviceable films. I think you think you'd see at least yeah you know, the fact that 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 the Chucky character gets more to say, gets more to do. Um, because by the time you get to Bride of Chucky, he's very chatty. Like you're hearing a whole lot from him, um, and then you're hearing a lot from Jennifer Tilly as well. Um, but I think I think you could probably, if you really just want to get through this as quickly as possible and not <laughs> just the high see, points. See, just the high points. <laughs> not see seven or eight films and a TV show and all that stuff. I would just see. I would start with Child's Play and then skip to Bride of Chucky and Seed of Chucky and maybe leave it at that. All right. Thank you for uh, weaponizing your expertise on Chucky and uh, saving us all a lot of time. Scott, we appreciate it. Of course. That's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show, but we will be back next week with a slightly different kind of pairing that, as far as I know, at least, is completely free of killer dolls. Uh, Scott, is that true? I hope not. (laughs) Okay, fine, then. Uh, what, What are we doing next time? In 2016, French documentary filmmaker Alice Jop spent time in a courtroom in the northern town of Saint-Omer and listened to the testimony of Fabienne Cubot, a Senegalese woman who confessed to the abhorrent act of leaving her 15-month-old child on a beach for the tide to wash her to sea. With her first feature, Saint-Omer, Jop fictionalizes a similar scenario as a courtroom drama, with an academic as her on-screen surrogate. Jop's efforts to make an inexplicable crime explicable calls to mind Truman Capote's seminal true crime book In Cold Blood and its 1967 film adaptation. With scrupulous detail, the film recounts the murder of the Clutters, a rural family of four by two ex-cons who were hoping to score thousands in a robbery. Capote's book and Richard Brooks's film dig into the twisted psychology that led to such a shocking act. So next week, we'll try to puzzle out In Cold Blood and Saint-Omer, which have more than just the facts on their minds. For now, we welcome your feedback on Child's Play, Megan, and anything else film-related you would like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith. Uh, I'm a freelance writer. You can follow my work on on KFIP3000 at Twitter. Um, I write for places like GQ, The Ringer, Vulture, TV Guide, and The Reveal, the Substack newsletter that I do with my friend Scott Tobias, who you might know from the podcast, The Next Picture Show. You can see that at thereveal.substack.com. We do reviews, we do essays, we do, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Scott, how about you? Where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias, where I um, like to reply to political threads, and <laughs> block people, and then and then and then you can find uh, find me at the reveal. We should say that uh, we we have kicked off our sight and sound. We're going through all of the sight sight and sound list. All one hundred uh, of them. Uh, for, all 100 of them starting with get out so you can check check that out and become come part of the discussion we really hope this is a big community project and that we're not just the only ones chatting about this stuff and seeing these movies there's a lot of good ones obviously uh then you can find me at, at uh, vulture at, at the new york times at guardian and other fine outlets genevieve uh, i am the tv editor at vulture and still hanging around on twitter at genevieve kosky tasha 
I am also still hanging around on Twitter, occasionally at Tasha Robinson. I am the film and streaming editor at Polygon.com, the only place where you can find my explanation of why Tar and Marcel the Shells with Shell with Shoes on are the exact same movie. I'm never going to stop pimping that piece because the only people in the world who are going to read it uh, are the kind of people that listen to this podcast. (laughs) Stay updated on The Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod. Get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And as always, we appreciate your rating and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Thanks to Dan the Baked Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time.